Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here, as always, with my extra special, stupendous, over-the-top <laughs> Ellen McGirt. Ellen, how are you? I am good. I am good. I'm happy to be here. We've got a very special guest. We're going to be talking about one of everybody's favorite subjects, when, unless it's super divisive. We're going to be talking about money today, aren't we, Alan? Money, yeah, and, and payments and how money moves. It's Jeff Sloan. He's the CEO of Global Payments, which makes some of the technology plumbing that underscores commerce. So we know he's had a really interesting two years here. In fact, Jeff, last time I saw you was right before the pandemic began. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think that was the last meeting, Alan, that I had right before the world shut down in March of 20. So I'm happy to say it's nice to see you and Ellen and under better circumstances. No, I was just going to say in those two years, you've also joined the Fortune 500. So we should mention that right up the top. We're very proud of that. Thank you for mentioning that. It's a great thing. We love companies in the Fortune 500. But Jeff, why don't we start off because even though you're in the Fortune 500, you're not as well known to our listeners as some of the more consumer-facing payment companies like a, a PayPal or a Square. So why don't we start off by you telling us what Global Payments does and how you compare to those companies? We're one of the largest payment technology providers in the world. Uh, what we do is we build technologies that enable all sorts of businesses, merchants, banks, software companies, technology companies, to accept payments. A really good example, Alan, is we have over 150,000 quick service restaurants in North America using our technology. So if you order uh, from Burger King on your cell phone, for example, and that's a customer of ours, get your hamburger, pay with your face or your thumb, get your hamburger delivered via DoorDash or Uber Eats, uh, all that technology really is ours You know, at the end of the day. So we really facilitate acceptance of digital payments. And of course, the pandemic's had quite an impact on our business. The pandemic uh, really accelerated the digitization of payments by probably three to five years. And one of the important things to know about global payments, Ellen, is that we sit in between um, the merchants, the software companies, the financial institutions, Visa, MasterCard, uh, and we make sure uh, that um, our customers, merchants, corporates, get paid digitally uh, for things that they're, uh, they're rendering. So needless to say, in an environment where people want to touch fewer things, like you want to pay your rent online, you want to valet your car using your phone. You want to change your thermostat with your face. Environments like that, uh, where people are less prone to touch things physically, uh, we benefit from all those kinds of trends. So many things, uh, as you say, uh, in that world have been accelerated by the pandemic. Lots of stuff here we want to uh, dig into. But let's start with the integration of the virtual world and the real world. We see examples of that all over. Uh, that's obviously got to be an issue for you when you're dealing with companies like a Burger King that are selling hamburgers online and in person. How does that work? What the pandemic really did, Alan, is it really accelerated the blurring of the lines between the virtual and the physical worlds. Now people think about their laptops, their iPads, their cell phones, the same way they think about physically going into a store and they want complete flexibility, regardless of where they go, one needs to be interoperable for the other. So now there is no really more distinction between e-commerce and what we call omnichannel or acceptance in the virtual world as well as the physical world. We did $1.45 billion of revenue 
in the omni-channel world that I just described, that blending last year, that blending of the virtual and, uh, and physical um, environment. So for example, we just announced Adidas, Skechers, Brooks, all those kind of shoe companies. We provide all those technologies to allow those types of corporate customers to sell their goods online as well as offline seamlessly. So now Ellen can walk into a shoe store, buy something online, decide it's the wrong color or the wrong size, return it in a physical environment or just send it back and do it online. All that underlying uh, technology like a Shopify or a PayPal or someone else would have, that's really what we do at the uh, end of the day. And as painful as the pandemic has been for so many obvious reasons, as it relates to the way um, that consumers shop, we believe that that environment has permanently changed. And that business for us, Alan, today uh, is growing 30 to 40% faster, that e-com omni-channel business, than it did pre-pandemic and at size at a billion five. Good wow. Lord. Well, I'm glad you talked about Ellen's shoes and not mine because I'm I'm wearing slippers right now. I still have my see, I still have my bedroom slippers on. <laughs> so I'm not a good shoe consumer, but Ellen may be. <laughs> you don't have to just buy that's, those face to face. That's good for a holiday. I'm going to use my face to buy you some new slippers, Alan. <laughs> Jeff, based on everything that you've been seeing and learning, and just the blender that you've been in. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the future of shopping and buying? We've got crypto, we've got the metaverse coming. How strange is this world going to get and how can consumers and businesses keep up? Well, the first thing I'd say, Ellen, is you know we're not going to go backwards, right? So even as the pandemic becomes endemic, I don't think you're going to see consumers kind of raise their hand, Ellen, and say, now I want to wait in line again. Thank goodness that's behind me. <laughs> so I, I don't really think there's any kind of motivation or push uh, to going backwards. A great example of that, Ellen, is our uh, advanced MD medical business. So we did something like two and a half million teledoc visits last year in 21, Ellen. Wow. Pre-pandemic, wow. we did like uh, 25,000 in 2019. So even if and as the pandemic becomes more like the flu and more endemic, I don't see a change where people go back to the old way of doing business. I think that's kind of point Point number one. The second thing I'd say, Ellen, is things like buy now, pay later, or what we call BMPL, the proliferation of alternative payment means, some of which are through your banks, and some of which are through newer players, like in a firm or a Klarna, which actually are, are non-banks. I don't see that changing either. In fact, in last year, 2021, global payments did over 2 billion buy now, pay later transactions. Wow. And I'd say, Ellen, that's probably up 50%. So the idea that consumers can kind of pay the way they want, pay over the number of payments that they want, generally not get charged for paying in installments, we're one of the biggest providers um, of that type of functionality. And uh, that's something obviously the pandemic um, accelerated. This is a fascinating topic, but you say generally don't get charged. I've heard of examples where in fact they can, particularly if they miss a payment, be charged interest rates as high as 30%. Sure. So uh, there's a couple ways those models work out. Let me just be clear about global payments up front. We're actually not a bank and we don't extend credit to consumers. So it's our technology that the merchants okay. are using just to be clear. So we don't take any underwriting. or. So you don't set the terms of the loan. That's exactly right. So we're not taking any credit or balance sheet or underwriting risk on it. What I was really referring to, Alan, is in some of those models, particularly given where they started, they're generally charging a mix of the merchant as well as the consumer. So it's slightly different than you using your Bank of America card or your Capital One card. Now that may evolve over time, back to what you said. So a lot of these innovations that you're talking about seemed geared towards people who already have 
money, which it seems funny to say it that way. <laughs> but but I'm, this is really a, a question about financial inclusion, which I know has been a big topic of conversation um, in the fintech world and just in the corporate world in general. Do you see any trends or opportunities for financial services, um, given your, your viewpoint on all of this, for people who um, have been unbanked, for example, or who have not um, enjoyed the kind of financial inclusion in the past? Yeah, absolutely. It's a terrific question. So one of the businesses that uh, we own today is a business called NetSpend, which is actually focused on unbanked uh, and underbanked individuals, primarily in the United States, but also in Europe. One of the things, Ellen, that we're most proud of is during the pandemic, we facilitated the disbursement of over $5 billion of aid from the federal government directly to consumers who don't have traditional bank accounts. Instead, as you would imagine with us, Ellen, they have digital banking accounts You know, with us. We've been very proud uh, that our team members have been involved in broadening financial access and being more inclusive uh, and facilitating that aid, in many cases, Ellen, days in advance of what more traditional kind of fee charging uh, financial institutions uh, and others would do. Um, so I do think from the pandemic, you have seen an expansion of the pool, uh, mainly through uh, many of the programs that we've helped uh, facilitate. The other thing I'd say, if you go back to Alan's question about buy now, pay later, um, almost by definition, a lot of the work that we do there is with non-bank card, meaning outside the more traditional financial institution spectrum. Given the, the typical size of those transactions, which are smaller, they're 30 to $40 on average instead of 50 to $80. Uh, they're done more on a repeat basis. A lot of those are done by younger uh, consumers. I think that has a very nice part that speaks to inclusivity uh, and expanding the footprint of people who are able to shop online, which you use, as you know, is not traditionally a cash business, kind of buying something online. So I, I do think innovations have expanded the pool of opportunity, uh, as difficult as the pandemic has been, you know, as a human matter. Yeah, you know, I, it's so interesting. I hear you talk about buy now, pay later is this kind of new thing that's going on in the retail world. And it's a function of my age, I guess. My mind immediately goes back to Wellington Wimpy on Popeye, who said, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger, <laughs> a hamburger today. today. <laughs> I mean, this is not... <laughs> but let's leave Wimpy aside. Cryptocurrency, right? I talk to people who fervently believe that 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, the whole payments ecosystem that you are a part of will be gone and everything will be done on the blockchain because it's more efficient and simpler and easier and uh, less expensive for people to do that. Where do you think we're headed with cryptocurrency and blockchain and decentralization of finance? At the end of the day, I think the first answer to your question, Alan, about kind of where we sit and the proliferation of new payment types is that last mile of connectivity has taken us half a century to build up and is very hard to get to. So as long as you're using something, Alan, other than cash and check, and cash and check is the enemy, and the pandemic has accelerated the decline of cash and check, as long as you as a consumer are paying for something other than in cash and check, we ultimately are going to get paid and stay in the middle of the process. That's interesting. So then crypto should be your friend. So you're in a position to give us uh, an objective reading on where it's really going. Exactly. And I would parse what you asked, Alan, into two pieces. First on the crypto side and second on the blockchain side. So let's, because crypto is an example, but it's not the only thing in blockchain. So as it relates first to crypto, sitting here today, crypto is mostly a person-to-person -person kind of trading business as a consumer matter. Now, why do I say that? Because a typical grocery store, for example, has 1% operating margins. Bitcoin today is swinging four to 500 basis points a day. No grocer is going to take that, even if it's you know same day or overnight or next night risk, 
It just doesn't make any sense as a risk matter. Now, I do think a derivative of that, Alan, is stablecoin, and the Federal Reserve has come out with a bunch of papers over the last six months. I do think there's a, a role for a digital fiat currency in the United States and globally. The UK has said the same thing, so has China. So I certainly foresee a time in the next 12 to 18 months where you see stable coins as an example of cryptocurrency, um, which really isn't all that different now than what we do today, which is electronic transactions, which is our primary business. So as it relates to person-to-person -person trading, we announced a deal with PayPal where their digital wallet trading, if you're a consumer and you want to buy cryptocurrency in your PayPal digital wallet, the technology behind that is ours. Um, if it's done you know, cross-border, kind of overseas and the like, um, if you're using a bank card, a Visa, MasterCard, whatever, Discover, Amex, to go buy that. If you go into Coinbase, for example, on their digital wallet and you're buying cryptocurrency and you're using PayPal, that's us too. So I think we've got a good position, Alan, as it relates to that derivative part of what the consumer is doing by powering the loading of the digital wallets. But as I said before, in the context of the grocery, if it's not a stable coin uh, and it's something that fluctuates pretty dramatically intra-period, intra-day, it's hard for a merchant to accept that today. Where you will see acceptance, and this speaks to our B2B business, is cross-border for corporates. So there's no reason for a corporate with crypto to pay a VIG or a fee on FX. You can do that stuff in cryptocurrency, and you could probably hedge or take some more risk if that's what you want to do on the variability in Bitcoin or Ethereum pricing. So we are looking at use cases, Alan, uh, cross-border to replace FX. And there, I think you will see in the immediate term a real role for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Finally, as it relates to blockchain, the idea of distributed ledger technology, of which crypto is just one example, um, I think does hold a lot of promise. But I would say that that's more along the lines of what the Fed had described in terms of FedNow, which is real-time payments and real-time access to your funds and not having to wait for a check to clear or for you to get paid at work. And that's something we already facilitate hundreds of millions of times overseas every day, and that's nothing but good news for our business. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US and the sponsor of this podcast for all three of its seasons. Thank you for that, Joe. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, one of the surprises we saw in 2020 in the midst of a lot of bad news was some good news, an acceleration in the adoption of digital technology. Do you think that's going to continue? I do, Alan. And I would say that the cause for optimism is warranted. There are going to be some pretty significant dividends that come from the massive acceleration in all things digital. We're going to see significant benefits to the economy from the big digital transformation investments the companies are making. I think we're going to see big benefits to people in terms of quality of life as we see new models for working that allow greater flexibility, productivity. So people were forced to innovate in 2020 because an extreme change of circumstances was forced upon them. Can they keep up that pace of innovation? Well, that's the challenge for all of us as leaders. I saw a great quote in one of your interviews, Alan, that in this period of time, change was free because the alternative to change was even worse. We all have to look back on the way in which we moved so quickly, we broke some glass, we didn't let corporate bureaucracy get in the way, and it actually benefited all of us significantly and leverage that mindset going forward to act more quickly, to be less inhibited by risk, 
and to see the true benefit of embedding digital transformation and an agile mindset within the way that our organizations operate on a go forward basis. Joe, thank you. Alan, pleasure to be here. switch gears a little bit and and have you put on your CEO leader of people hat and not just mover of, of money and technology. This has been a really challenging couple of years as we've already mentioned, including some coming to the fore of some really pressing social issues, including the environment and race and justice and all that other stuff. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you handled those issues and how you pulse your employees about what's important to them around inclusion, around activism, around the environment, and how you sorted that out? Yeah, I think one of the most important traits generally, and certainly in a pandemic, is empathy. I think at the end of the day, you know, in regards to the fact that this is a technology company, it's run by human beings, right? So no matter how much technology you're selling at the end of the day, when something goes bump in the night, you're going to pick up the phone or pick up the chat or whatever, and generally speak ultimately to a uh, to human being. So we always say at the company that our people come first, and we've made a lot of investments and done a lot of things to make sure that we live up to the promise that I just mentioned. The first thing we did um, starting probably five years ago, uh, Ellen, is really start reporting to our board on our diversity, um, equity, and inclusion initiatives and establish public targets which we posted on our website in our corporate uh, responsibility report last August for the first time publicly, uh, both about where we are today as a business, Ellen, and also where we want to be in 2025. And we post that every year publicly, and now we monitor what our, uh, you know, what our progress is at every level of the company. A great example of that is our succession planning. So we've built diversity, equity, and inclusion into our plans, not just for the current generation of leadership of the company, but where the company wants to be in three years, four years, and five years. And those are publicly articulated goals that not just the public can see, but that our team members can see publicly and they can grade us on, uh, on how we're doing. The second thing we did is we really reformed our focus groups within the company. So we have groups uh, for veterans. We have group, uh, groups for many years, for 10 years plus with, uh, with women. We have our Onyx group uh, for African-Americans. Uh, we have uh, an LGBTQIA group. Uh, as well, and we really want to make sure that we're promoting those groups. The last thing I would say is we as a company have a long history of volunteer work, of charitable giving and everything else. You know, we dedicate and donate uh, tens of thousands of hours a year uh, back to volunteer work in our communities where we live and work. And I think that feeling, Ellen, of being grounded uh, where we live and work is hugely important. The main thing is we all do it globally together, you know, twice a year during the work week. And I think that part really binds us together and we can see how everybody uh, makes our, the communities where we live and work uh, a better place. Jeff, let's stick with the leadership theme for a little bit, because one of the things that has changed the nature of leadership is just the extraordinarily rapid pace of change. And your industry, your area, you see some of the fastest technological changes. As you say, things like buy now, pay later, uh, uh, changes in payment systems. It's all changing very, very fast. It makes it hard for somebody in your position to formulate a long-term plan or a five-year strategy because things change overnight. How do you as a leader deal with the extraordinary pace of, of technological change? Listen, I, I think we do a, th a few things really well. First, we're a technology company. So I think to a certain extent, we're used to rapid change in our business. Uh, we're very happy to partner with some of the largest technology companies like Amazon, and Google on the planet um, to get the very best uh, of technology and cut into cutting edge um, uh, solutions. The second thing I'd say 
uh, at the end of the day is that we're very close to the customer. And one of the things I'm most proud of is our ears always to the ground. We know instantly what sells and what doesn't sell. A great example is Alan is when the pandemic first hit. So we enabled hundreds, if not thousands, of restaurants to go online almost overnight. It was probably you know within the span of a week from being physical only um, to being virtual as well as physical. That was an underlying trend in our business for a long time. As I say, the pandemic probably accelerated that by at least five years. The way we got there is by being flexible in our technology approach, but having our ears to the ground and listening to the customer, and that served us very well. I just, I just want to build on Alan's question for a second, because we executive focus is something that we talk a lot about, and just how much time do you have or can you carve out, or what is your strategy for thinking about the future? Because you have to think about it on so many different levels. You have to think about the well-being of your employees. You have to think about trends that are coming. You have to think about what signals to pay attention to. You know, ear to the ground is one thing, but how do you manage the thinking part of your job? I have other people who do the thinking for me and with me. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good way to do it. <laughs> uh, to what you, yeah, to what you just asked. I don't have a monopoly on all the ideas myself, but um, so look, we have a few elements um, in our business that speak to that. The first thing I'd say is every other month um, I get deep reviews on how our businesses are performing as an operating matter, which is really more than anything else a strategy question in terms of how we're doing. So there, I'm not focused on P and Ls, Ellen. There, I'm focused on future state, product development, kind of where do we want to be six, twelve, eighteen, twenty-four months from now. What are our competitors doing? What's the market telling us? That's kind of point number one. Point number two, we have a corporate enterprise initiatives group that thinks about many of the things that Alan asked about. So cryptocurrencies, blockchain, buy now, pay later. We have a group that just thinks about that 24-7, uh, and I meet with them every week you know, to go through kind of where that business is, uh, is going. But the last thing I'd say is I think it's important as a leadership matter, Alan, to surround yourself with people who disagree with you. And this, I think, comes from my background. I was in banking for 16 years before I came here, and Global was actually one of my clients, which is why I came here in the, uh, in the first place is, you know, back in my banking days, you know, your IP was just thinking, you know, at the end of the day. So if there was an issue where we want to invent a new product, you get 10 smart people in a room, and we might have 50 different opinions, but you're going to come out with one. And I like to think that we're the same way. I like being surrounded by people who don't agree uh, with wherever I am. And at the end of the day, if there's a problem, we'll have 10 smart people, you know, in a room and the most junior person or the most senior person could have the right solution. But I can guarantee you when we come out of that room, we're going to have one answer. So I think we're much benefited uh, by our diversity of thought, our diversity of background, uh, and everything else, our diversity of community. Uh, and I think uh, the sum of the parts is is uh, much greater than the whole, is the way I think about how we lead. Ellen, you want to do our lightning round here? We're going to do our lightning round. This is short answers only. This is We're taking a pulse of all of our guests this year on Leadership Next on three key elements of their business lives. A couple of sentences will do it. And I can already tell that you're, one of your answers is going to make Alan very happy. <laughs> the first one is, <laughs> what's top of mind for you when it comes to COVID? Uh, the health of our employees. There's no doubt about it. Um, I would say at the height of it, Ellen, I know this might be Lauren's senses, but I'm really passionate about health uh, here. So I want people to want to work here. I want people to thrive and be healthy here. The last thing I want is for someone not to be doing well here. So I think it's the health and satisfaction of employees. There's no doubt in my mind that's the most important thing. Second question is, what's top of mind for you when you think about the economy? Well, the health of the consumer. So our business is a derivative of GDP growth. So consumer spending, the health of the consumer, you probably saw retail sales the other day, uh, Ellen, which were good. Our business generally tracks that kind of thing. So clearly when there were mass shutdowns during the height of the pandemic, I can tell you that wasn't good. So the health of the consumer is my primary metric. And the last one is, what's top of mind for you and your journey as a leader? 
Well, I, you know, I ask myself all the time, uh, what's the next stage? You know, it's funny, I, I say to my wife, hey, we hit, you know, one of our goals, and Alan will appreciate this because he let off with this. One of the goals was when I took over eight and a half years ago was to become a Fortune 500 company. So we thought we would need, we were like sub two billion in revenue eight years ago, whatever it was. This year, well, uh, our guide the other day for this year was uh, call it eight to nine billion, you know, of revenue this year. And we thought we would need like six, seven, whatever it is, Alan, to kind of make the list here in the United States. And it took us kind of eight years to, to get there. Now we set a new goal, which is to double revenue again and get into the Fortune 250 and then 100. And I'm not saying that just because Alan is sitting here. That has been our goal <laughs> oh, for a long great. time. Look, look, so. out, look out Walmart. Look out Walmart. Keep climbing up that list. <laughs> Keep climbing up that list. I'll tell you, we think Fortune should be part of everyone's goals. Right, Ellen? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Jeff, thanks so much. Uh, uh, we know uh, global payments a little better than, than we did 30 minutes ago. Fascinating conversation. Very fascinating area of the economy. We appreciate you opening the window and giving us a view. Thanks for having me. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 